The Guru. Find out more at bafta.org forward slash guru. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of The Guru, coming to you from BAFTA's offices in Piccadilly. So today we'll be hearing from the people behind the scenes here at BAFTA who programme the various lectures, masterclasses and live Q&As that shape The Guru calendar. I'm Rihanna Dillon. That's the year 2015 in film, television and games all to come. To start with, I am joined by Katie Campbell in a very tiny little room off the BAFTA offices. Glamorous, glamorous BAFTA. It is BAFTA. glamorous. <laughs> well, there is a picture of Leonardo DiCaprio that I can see, and I'm, I'm quite happy with that. That's Looking very me. handsome. Um, Katie, it's really nice to sort of see you in a slightly different way, because we have meetings quite a lot and we chat. And I actually finally get to find out what you actually do, your actual job title, because I've never, I've always been too scared to ask. So <laughs> what do you do here at BAFTA? It's gotten so long in our uh, <laughs> professional relationship, it's too late to ask. And now you get to do it on the podcast. So I'm the skills development manager, which involves programming events and initiatives and editing BAFTA Guru, making sure that um, our career starter audience and those who are at the beginning of their career in the industry are getting the skills and the insight from BAFTA winners and nominees that they need to progress in the creative industry. So that's film, TV and games. I think for a lot of people, they would assume that the busiest time of year for you would be around the BAFTA awards. Is that true? Oh, how wrong they would be. <laughs> um, we run something like 250, 300 events a year. <sighs> and so we, we do have a busy last quarter of the year leading up to the film awards in February but we are an all year round program and we're online as well as live and so we have everything from sessions around the awards with winners and nominees but we have annual lectures which are kind of a moment for the industry to reflect on itself and we have masterclasses and panels Q and A's basically as much access to our winners and nominees and those creative minds as possible so I want you to do a bit of name dropping quickly give me some real clangs of who you've seen speak and who's really stuck with you give me some proper names I'm going to be impressed by so I'm less starry than my colleagues for sure (laughs) because my program is very much features heavily behind the scenes talent I'm talking of people like cinematographers costume designers around July we did Um, the Sergeant Disc Filmmakers Forum which was 25 events in one day I'm not going to list all of them (laughs) because that would be very long and boring but one of the highlights for me was a session called Based on a True Story which we invited the nominees from the Outstanding Debut category including Elaine Constantine, amazing photographer, who, but also wrote and directed Northern Soul based on her experiences in that community. And we also invited Morgan Matthews and the winner of that category, Stephen Beresford, who wrote Pride. And then Jeff Pope, who received the special award at our TV Awards, who is a producer, screenwriter, just all round amazing kind of program maker about their experiences extracting um, dramatic stories from true experience whether it's other people's true stories or their own experiences or in Morgan Matthews case his own documentary. So is that what we're going to hear from today we're going to hear from Jeff Pope? Yeah so I picked a clip from Jeff's session. Mm -hmm. What's Jeff's most recent body of work he wrote the screenplay for Philomena Uh which is a pretty big deal yes a big deal but he is also the exec producer and writer of various 
TV dramas, things like Mrs. Biggs. Mm-hmm. He wrote Scylla. He's done a miniseries around the Moors murders. So he sometimes tackles very difficult um, true stories, which perhaps are not the most comfortable stories to tell. And he kind of comes at this with a producer and a writer hat when he kind of talks about both. And here he's talking about what you are and aren't allowed to dramatise and that difficult area when you're working with people in often very dark or tragic situations or people who are alive and you're you've been talking to and how you what you include and how you how you Mm -hmm. sort of dramatize that okay well let's hear from the man himself this is jeff pope what happens in those situations is that you're forced to look at what can you say you can't attribute things like vanity and uh, self-interest because you're portraying in in a defamatory way so you're reduced to saying what the dialogue you give him or the things he does in scenes have to be approved by the lawyers. And that's it's actually quite an interesting discipline because actually when you reduce a scene and the things he can say right down to those bare bones, you find you can still say what you want to say without resorting to overt dialogue that, that's more um, pointed. You can still say what you want to say within the confines of, of the law of libel and defamation. I think it's just an area you really have to interrogate when, when you do that and if people are alive and work so carefully. One project that I'd commissioned actually once, which Frank Deasy, the great Frank Deasy wrote, um, based on the Austrian tourist rape case, um, there was a complaint from the ex-husband. But because he'd already years ago sold his story to the son, he didn't have a leg to stand on because he'd put his story in the public domain. So it's, it's different things you'll find. Every single one requires research and careful handling, really. So truth was the point I was blundering towards. Truth. truth. So uh, in the end, if you reduce it to things that you know happened, decisions that you know were taken, events you know, that, that you can prove took place, the truth does set you free. That was Jeff Pope, and you also heard Kate Rowland from BBC Writers' Room, who was also on the same panel. So, Katie, that was all about restrictions and the threat of a lawyer. So why was that so fascinating for you? What I really liked about this clip is it started with an anecdote about, again, restriction and the kind of parameters that can seem tricky to a writer who is tackling a subject from true life. And again, I think this advice sits whether you are mining your teenage diaries as <laughs> writing something really personal or whether you've um you are working with a contributor around their experience it kind of goes into this lovely point about truth and if you use those parameters as a framework the piece gets better and I think what Jeff kind of he says he's blundering towards it he's actually being terrifically articulate what Jeff actually says about the truth setting you free is a really just an, I think it's a really nice piece of a really strong piece of advice about how sometimes obstacles be- can become a climbing frame, parameters can become support structure, and how your craft can get better if you look at it in a really bare bones approach. And then obviously Kate Rowland from the writer's room chips in with just some very good general advice about how you just have to really do your search and be really careful. <laughs> which I think is probably true as well. (laughs) We're actually going to stick with the screenwriter theme because our last podcast was the screenwriter's debrief and we're moving on now to Andrew Bavell. So Andrew Bavell is a really amazing playwright and screenwriter. He wrote 
Lantana and A Most Wanted Man. And he came as part of our annual lecture series, which happens every September, which invites screenwriters to discuss their um, their art form and their work. And he gave a really personal lecture about the sort of journey of developing one script in Hollywood, his career. I mean, it was terrifically kind of inspiring and insightful. And I've picked a clip which really resonated with me. When I left, I was thinking about it and I listened to it a couple more times. And just to kind of contextualise it a bit, he covered quite a lot of ground from a film somewhat losing its way uh, to television to the collaborative nature of the process working with one specific director on his debut and the purity of that right through to actually what a screenplay is and that kind of misunderstanding that it's somehow a blueprint or a set of instructions rather than a vision of its own and there's a point he makes at the beginning about the director of Lantana his again his debut which really resonated with me because I do an awful lot with the unsung behind the scenes heroes who really make a film and whose creative vision really add to it and for a writer to put a piece like that in his lecture I just thought was so interesting. You've absolutely intrigued me let's hear from Andrew Bavel. At the end of the shoot on Lantana Ray Lawrence the director printed up a t-shirt for everyone involved in the film. On the front it said Lantana, and on the back it said a film by, and then it listed the names of everybody who had anything to do with the film, from the director himself to the names of the catering crew, in alphabetical order. Fortunately, I was quite near the top. <laughs> it's a symbolic gesture, but one that reflected the spirit in which the film was made. Ray also chose not to have a possessory credit, such as a Ray Lawrence film at the front of the picture, opting instead for a simple directed by in the end credits. Another indication, I think, of the spirit in which the film was made. As the writer of Lantana, Ray and Jan Chapman, the film's producer, made three important gestures towards me. The first was to hold a reading of the screenplay with the cast for the crew and for everybody who'd financed the film. It's not always possible, but it served to share the story with everybody who was about to make it and therefore to give them a sense of ownership and investment in it. And it was a mark of respect to the screenplay and to its writer. It said, this document matters. The second was to ask me to be on a set as much as possible so that the person who knew the mechanics of the story best, its writer, could provide the solutions to new problems as they arose in the shoot. The third was to welcome me into the edit room, not just welcome me, but to recognise that my insights were of value. So often a screenwriter is only invited into the edit room towards the end of the process, but unless you've seen the steps made to arrive at the point you're at, it's very difficult to deconstruct what's there in order to offer meaningful and effective feedback. You are reduced to simply endorsing what you see, encouraging what's going on. You know it's a process, it's just that you're not a part of it. I hold Lantana up as a model for successful collaboration in film and I believe that the film's success reflected the way it was made. Those of us who write for the screen are familiar with the argument that the screenplay is a blueprint, the architectural plan for the film. It has no artistic value or point beyond that. Some of us might actually agree with it. I think it is that, but it's not only that. Architectural plans 
are more than a set of instructions. They contain a vision. So does a screenplay. The screenplay, whether written for the big or small screen, must capture the imagination and inspire the director and the other artists, particularly the actors. It must enable them to do their best work by engaging their intellect and their instincts. It must win the confidence of those who will finance it by being clear in its intent and sharp in its execution. It must carry the possibility of the film and evoke the experience that will be offered for its audience. It must convey pace and rhythm and tone. It must offer the most vivid images and reveal the complexities of human behaviour, not through the interior voice that's available to the novelist, but through what a character does, what a character says, and what a character fails to say and do. A good screenplay is like a fine poem where the maximum amount of meaning possible is expressed with as fewer words as possible, where what sits on the page is the tip of the iceberg and the portal to the depth of meaning that is often left unsaid in order to allow room for the camera to reveal what's hidden. Often the best dialogue simply frames the moment. Writing a screenplay is about creating the space for an actor to fill. The camera is at its most revealing in the spaces between what is said, in the silence and stillness of the moments in between. And of more and more interest to me as a writer is not what the character says, but their struggle to say it. Their search for meaning in the words and actions they use to describe their world. Not so much what they convey, but their failure to convey it. That's art. That's literature, that's whatever you want to call it, but it's not just a set of instructions that may or may not be followed. It is an organic document that continues to change as the film is shot and edited. But I strongly believe that the vision of the film is to be found first in the words on a page. So it's very easy, I think, to be vague when you're giving advice, but there were some real gems in there. So what's stuck with you? The reason I really loved this clip is that on one hand, it's quite specific. It's about screenwriting, film screenwriting mainly, because TV screenwriting is perhaps more in the hands of the writer than um, film screenwriting. But it's also broader. To me, it's kind of cross-sector because it's sort of saying the understanding of this process, this alchemy, is really key to, to creating something. And, it, and he says that's what art is. And I think it's as true of a game probably as it is of a screenplay for a film and I think it's something unique to the moving image arts he really evokes that sense of how of, of something moving and, and and the sense of play that a screenplay needs to have it needs to inspire people to invest in it it needs to inspire people to want to perform in it and while that is a screenplay thing I think it's true for anyone with a creative vision in any of the creative industries, particularly the work that we do at BAFTA, because it's, it's advice about what it is to, to be creative in the moving image arts. And also, he's just so articulate. Amazing. I just sort of nod. I was just sort of <laughs> nodding along and yes, Andrew, that's great. And also there is specific advice in there about pace and things like that, which is very important. It was interesting that you talked about silence. You know, it's interesting for a writer to talk about the importance of silence. Mm. What a character doesn't do, what a character yeah. struggles to do. I'm sure I wouldn't dare to kind of speak for the struggles of new writers, but it must be easy to overwrite your first screenplay. Everything goes out of you in one go. And I sort of think that that freedom to be restrained and to trust your reader and your audience is so great. And then I've, we've gone right into the meat of that quote, but what I also wanted to talk about was at the beginning of that quote where he talks about the director of Lantana 
um, because they flow really nicely into each other. But that idea of a film by everyone who's worked on it is so kind of collaborative and brilliant. And I just love, I love the director for doing that. And I like that he talks about it in his lecture. Thinking about those sort of, not rules that he's set out, but Mm. thinking about those sort of parameters, what film have you seen? Because I know that you actively go and see a lot of BAFTA films. Mm. So what have you seen recently that you think those rules apply to? I saw a film called Grandma, which I think is written by Paul White. It's got Lily Tomlin and a relatively unknown actress, and it's about a grandmother and her daughter hitting the road, trying to get the funds to get an abortion, which is obviously a very relevant and political story, mm-hmm. but it's also really personal and funny, and it's a perfect 80 minutes, I think. Yeah, it which is. Which is and dreamy. You're absolutely right about the script, because that was the, the best thing, that's what you took away from the dialogue, because it, yeah. it was very witty and so meaty. Yeah, and but both of the characters. Were things. Yeah. Yeah. as well and both the characters really existed in 3d and they weren't really they didn't do a lot and they weren't around for a long time no. but it was just very we love them anyway yeah yeah they dro- basically drove to a few <laughs> places in the arch and lily tomlin is great i yeah. mean every, there's everything to love about that film here here well katie thank you so much for talking to me on the guru and obviously those clips are just a little taster of what we can actually hear where can we hear the full lectures so all of those are available on bafta guru and um, andrew Bavel particularly represents just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the screenwriters lecture series content there is now an archive it's in its sixth series yeah. it features people like charlie kaufman peter morgan abby morgan uh, there are <laughs> all people the all the major morgans um <laughs> but it's it's major it's scott frank it's major international talent yeah. it's just i mean it's a terrific resource for any any young writer so you can find all of that at bafta.org forward slash guru exactly That was Katie Campbell, and I am now joined by two more of BAFTA's core super team. Cam Candola-Flynn is the television programme manager, and Maria Kadabai is the film programme manager. So, Cam, what have you chosen from the television calendar this year? So I've chosen a soundbite from BBC Three's Life and Death Row, um, which we had featured at our TV Craft Sessions Day this year, where we shared insight from our Television Craft Awards winners and nominees. Um, The series was directed by Ben Anthony, and it's about three detainees on death row that are followed for a number of months and covered in the series. And this clip is from Rupert Hausman, who's the editor, and he talks about the challenges of editing real-life events. I've always thought how difficult it must be when you're dealing with situations like that, like, the, you know, death row, how hard it must be to edit down those interviews, which are very emotional. And, you know, how do you know which bits to cut out and keep in? Yeah, I can imagine it's a really difficult job. Also, you know, you have a lot of sensitive material dealing with. You have, you know, the actual guys that are going through it and their families. So you're kind of dealing with all of that and the importance of getting the story out and the truth of that. And also, I'm guessing you have all the legalities that you have to navigate, access to the prisons, um, access to the families, you know, an American story, an American state, you know, the rules and regulations of making a show for the BBC. So I can imagine it was really complicated. Um, And that's why in some ways it's kind of um, really brilliant in its form. So let's hear from Robert on that. The idea of trying to play things dramatically and not feeling that you're crossing the line, you know, is, uh, you know, because again, that was a balance, a constant wrestle to try and sort of push things as far as we can push them without being grotesque, um, you know, because it's, uh, it's, there's so much heat inside some of those rushes, just watching some of that stuff. These people are going through horrendous experiences. I mean, I mean, Ben, talk about sort of, you know, having to, a, a terrible day's filming. He had to, the first time he met both Anthony Haynes and uh, Richard Cobb, 
uh, was on the, the day before their execution. So you can imagine sitting there setting up and you're staring into the eyes of people who are 24 hours later probably going to be dead. And uh, that's an extraordinary thing to, to witness. And, you know, docs are, are brilliant at, at doing this, and, and especially because we, we, we used an interotron in that. So we all looked into the eyes of these people and they conveyed all these emotions instantaneously to us. And uh, it's quite an experience to, to, as an editor to see some of that stuff. And, and it does, you know, it affects all of us, I think, when we sort of look at rushes and we, get, we, it's, we soak it up and then we want to convey that straight away and think, what was good about that? What was the bit that made me, really made me go, oh, or actually, is that too much? Is that the thing I have to remove now? Because if I leave that bit in, it pushes us over the edge. I mean, that's just an incredibly brutal piece of work, really. Do you sort of get a sense as to how emotionally difficult it must have been to make? Watching anything that deals with such sensitive subject matter can only be super difficult for kind of, you know, the craft people that are shooting it, editing it and making it. Because, you know, you are dealing with real people and their families and what they're going through. And there are probably a lot of ethical, emotional decisions you have to make about how you cover things and what you include and what you don't include. So from watching the series, I think you do get a sense of how much of a journey I think the programme makers went and how much of a honour it was to go through that with the kind of contributors that were on death row and their families. And I think that's the magic of that, of that series, really. Maria, what did you take away from that clip there? Um, I suppose for me, kind of, it was the emotional involvement that the programme makers get f- from it. When you watch something on TV, you kind of are very engrossed in the subject matter, but you often forget the whole team that's made it in their involvement and how it impacts their everyday life mm-hmm. and how what they take away from it. Maria, it's your turn now. So you've selected Todd Haynes, and this is a very recent interview, actually, isn't it? it only came out a few weeks ago. Yeah, this was um, towards the end of November. It's part of a strand of events called Life in Pictures. So Todd was at BAFTA HQ only a few weeks ago to discuss his entire career in filmography. <laughs> wow. So can you just tell us about some of his films? most recent credit is Carol. Mm-hmm. Um, he has done Far From Heaven, mm-hmm. Safe, Velvet Goldmine, a personal favourite. So this clip is in reference to actually his relationship with film as a child and what he was watching as a child and how that's influenced his filmmaking today. Well, let's hear from the man himself. Here is Todd Haynes. Certain films presented themselves to me at a very young age and made an uh, you know, inordinate a massive impression on me and began to sort of inflict some bizarre psychosis, I think, (laughs) that required a creative response, a creative answer, and uh, and an obsession. You know, it started with Mary Poppins when I was three years old. What better way to start? (laughs) Um, But there would be certain uh, movies that would just become my stimulus. For, for these sort of periods of my life. And then I started to make my own versions of them. Romeo and, the Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet was probably the next huge obsession when I was seven, around the year you were 68, so that's how old I was. And, uh, and that was the first film I sort of made as a kid and really put a lot of uh, energy and production and obsession into playing all the roles Except I even tried playing Juliet, um, and my mom did the, a test in Super 8, so we could try double exposure in the, in the house. I did a sort of painting of the Capulet ball on the wall, and I pop on 
at one point as dressed as Juliet. I don't know where that film is. Um, but ultimately, I used a friend to play Juliet, and I played all the other, played all the other roles in different little tunics that I made out of towels. <laughs> That's such a lovely clip. Uh, what, why did you pick it? Uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, when you um, hear from great filmmakers today, you often find out that obviously their love started as a child and it's very interesting to see what films influence them and how that's impacted on their kind of wild and wonderful careers, especially with Todd Haynes, kind of Mary Poppins and Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet are kind of both on opposite spectrums of the scale. And when you watch all of his films, you can kind of understand where his influences perhaps came from. Mm -hmm. Um, Also that many great filmmakers obviously start making films very at a very very young age and um, it's really interesting to see what their process was as a child. And of course because Todd Haynes's lecture was part of the Life and Picture series there have been loads of other incredible insights that we've heard from this year so talk us through who else has been particularly inspiring. So this year we've also had Kate Winslet, <gasps> Sam Mendes, Alan Rickman and a very well-known Hong Kong director Johnny Toe. That's an incredible lineup. It was. And the beauty of the series, I suppose, is that it's an opportunity to gain rare insights that perhaps sometimes people don't reveal, but it puts them in a relaxed atmosphere where they give little nuggets and gems of things that you've never heard. Kate Winslet talks about working with Harvey Keitel on the set of Holy Smoke in New Zealand, which is something I've never heard her talk about in an interview before. Johnny Toe was great for us just because it was the first time we've had Hong Kong director whose filmography is immense and who's done really well at film festivals around the world so it was really nice to bring him to the UK and introduce him to a British audience. Mm-hmm. And did that get a good reaction? Got a great reaction yeah. and we also had it in Cantonese and English so simultaneous wow. translation all the way through um, which is the first time we've done that but it was extremely successful. Alan Rickman was fantastic because obviously we've known him as a great actor for so many years, but he's turning his hand at directing. So he was talking about A Little Chaos, which mm-hmm. came out earlier this year. Um, Sam Mendes, who's done Revolutionary Road, which won a number of BAFTAs. Also, American Beauty, which was his first film, which obviously I think paved the way for a lot of independent American cinema. And then most recently, obviously, Spectre from Bond. So it was great just having such a diverse pool and range of people across the world and across so many different kind of facets of filmmaking they kind of all bring their own very unique voice to the strand and of course you can they're all available on BAFTA Guru and besides the ones I've just mentioned we have so many great names we have Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino, Meryl Streep, Kate Blanchett oh my gosh um, and then international names like Deepa Mehta and Amita Bachchan so it does really range across mm-hmm. the whole, whole world of great filmmaking yes, talent. Yes, do go and listen to more of those. Um, now, Cam, the second clip that you've picked is from the annual television lecture, which this year was Tim Hinks. So tell us about Tim. So Tim Hinks um, is the president of Endmore Shine Group, which is one of the biggest super indies slash studios, in, not in the UK, but also in the world. And really... Our television lecture is a highlight of our industry programme here at BAFTA. And I think he made some really interesting points this year. You know, some of the some of the areas he covered included that he thought that to be, you know, our best creatively, the industry needs to be less insular when looking for and nurturing new talent, which I think is incredibly important. 
also thinking about social class in the mix when we're talking about diversity and that's a really important part of the debate and what we should be thinking about when we're you know recruiting and hiring um, and developing our talent and crews and for me a really thought provoking thought around mainstream programming and how real risk for him um, and I kind of agree with you know is in the making of popular mainstream shows of which millions of people watch throughout the UK and often there can be a bit of snobbery about those shows so I quite liked his exploring of that theme. So the clip that we're about to hear uh, from Tim is specifically about diversity in the industry. What, What I think is clear and true to me is that no measure of diversity can be truly meaningful and without a measurement of social background and social mobility. I simply believe we're only going to get half of the way there unless we look at that and unless we measure it. Um, shows like the one we've just seen, many other shows like them, have been really, really good at inviting people from deprived, difficult social backgrounds into the edit suites, right? into the films. What we've manifestly failed to do is invite those people into our companies and into our uh, creative processes uh, and, and into our offices. Uh, we, we have just failed to do that. And it's time to redress the balance. And I would say, if Greg Dyke was able to say that the BBC was hideously uh, white, I, I, I would put it to you that it's not going over, overstretching us to say that this industry is currently hideously middle class. And that's an issue. That's a big, big problem. Because what I'm talking about is not moral, it's not political. I'm talking about a talent base, right? I'm just coming back to the very basics that we need to bring as many talents into this industry as we possibly can. And we're hampering ourselves by not fishing in a bigger pool. Now, it does feel like there has been some headway this year on diversity, largely thanks to Lenny Henry. But Hinks isn't just here to talk about race. He's obviously there talking about class. So what is the issue here? Well, I guess, as you say, Lenny Henry's um, BAFTA lecture the year before very much was a call to arms about diversity. And since then, the industry has come together to commit themselves to initiatives and quotas and delivering on diversity and there is you know they have come a long way and there's a lot of work to do but I think what Tim's trying to say is that we need to broaden how we look at diversity really and think about social class and mobility as he says as an issue and what's difficult I think from how I understand it which may not be entirely right is that it's quite difficult to measure in, in a different way that say disability or diversity is um, but I think it is a conversation that we need to kind of take hold of and I think it's really important because we're talking about the next generation of talent that want to see themselves reflected in the industry whether it's through race or through you know economics and we do need to take it seriously. Maria now turning now to your second clip you've selected cinematographer Robert Yeoman who works very closely with director Wes Anderson why did you choose him? Um, I wanted to pick a clip from Robert Yeoman's session that we did this year because um, it's very rare that you get to hear firsthand from such a world-class cinematographer but also one that's worked on a number of films with a world-class director such as Wes Anderson. Um, It's a rare relationship between a cinematographer and a director and sometimes on set perhaps it's the most important relationship that there is and Robert gave some beautiful insights about how he works with Wes Anderson and the craft of cinematography and just little tricks of the trade that you just don't get to hear on an everyday basis. I think the interviewer in that um, lecture was excellent as well, don't, don't you think? She was phenomenal. Probably the best <laughs> interview we've ever had at BAFTA. <laughs> so in this clip, I've just asked Robert Yeoman how he uses that fantastic symmetry when he's collaborating with Wes Anderson. 
That comes from Wes, mm -hmm. and I, I've been working with him, so I've done seven movies with him, so I kind of know what to expect. And uh, if I come into a room and I'm say I'm shooting this way, mm -hmm. I, I, what we do is I have the camera assistants take a piece of uh, 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 tape. So we put one on one side of one map box and the other on the other side. And we always just run to the corners of the room to make sure the camera is right in the dead center. Because I know that uh, when Wes walks in, the first thing he's going to say to me is, uh, are, are we square to the wall there? And I'll say, yes, we are. You know, so <laughs> we kind of do that by habit. Um, and whenever we make sets, um, they're very well designed where we go in with a, 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 a director's finder with the actual lenses on it. And we very carefully tape out where the door should be, where the window should be, because oftentimes, if you're familiar with Wes's movies, we're doing squish pans where we, you know, start center on the door, we go over to the <laughs> window, you know, we're very, everything's got to be very symmetrical. And uh, so actually the sets are kind of constructed to accommodate that symmetry. So a very technical clip there, but really interesting. Why did you pick that one? Um, I picked that because it actually sort of explains what he does in layman's terms in a way in a very, very practical sense you don't get to hear. So when you're kind of watching a Wes Anderson film or someone else's film for instance you kind of look at how they've designed a shop but you wouldn't ever understand how it's been put together and he explains it in terms of obviously just putting masking tape down and the way the camera is moving and how small the space is Robert and Wes have worked together on seven films and what they do I suppose now as you've heard from that clip can sometimes become second nature I suppose the beauty of working with the same people on a number of films has great advantages as you can see from the films that they've worked on together, from the Grand Budapest Hotel to the Life Aquatic to the Darjeeling Limited. They all have the same symmetry that's mentioned in the clip you've just listened to. Robert Yeoman is such a talented and fascinating man, so do go and check out the rest of that lecture, not just because I did it, but just because <laughs> he's so excellent to listen to. Um, Maria and Cam, thank you so much for talking to the BAFTA Guru. <laughs> So I'm now joined by Kerry Rizzo and Kerry, tell us, what do you do and how do you do it? Okay, well, my role here is the Games Events Programmer at BAFTA, um, which covers quite a wide variety of things. Um, obviously, we do a number of events throughout the year, ranging from everything from question times to masterclasses to showcases although I don't like that word so I'm we're trying to change them slightly well, I don't like the word showcases um, because we've, we've changed the format slightly this year and we've done a couple of um, what we're calling director's commentaries as well so we're not just showcasing the game we're really getting the developers of the game in the same way we do for film and tv to talk about their game over a level of the game so, you know, they're really talking through the creative process that went into that. Um, the most recent one we did was with the Chinese Room and Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, which is a beautiful game for PlayStation 4. You know, they're really talking through the, the process of everything that's gone into everything from the sound to the music to you know the art and side things as well so I program all of those. So it sounds like you've done ridiculous amounts this year <laughs> but what has really stuck with you give us some give us some names give us some real events that you loved. We have done question times we've done one on crunch and creativity um, we did one right at the back end of last year so mm -hmm. sneaking in, Yeah we'll really. sneak that in yeah. <laughs> um, on virtual reality which is obviously 
obviously going to be huge next year uh, for games with Oculus Rift, the Sony VR and the HTC Vive as well. I tried the Did Oculus you? Rift one. <laughs> that was one of the weirdest days of work I think I've ever it's done. It's really strange. It was so bizarre. It is. Like I got quite dizzy and I was just... <laughs> And I was so convinced that there was this world around me. Yeah. And I think that was only in like the early stages. So yeah. I can't wait to see what they're actually going to do. Yeah. And now it's already slick. We've actually, sneak preview, <gasps> we've actually um, got a virtual reality event coming up late, oh. early part of 2016. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that one. I well. will. <laughs> that sounds really exciting. I'll be there. So one of the biggest events in the Learning a New Talent Programme is the BAFTA Gaming Lecture. And yes. um, you've picked uh, someone called Jade Raymond. So, um, Jade Raymond is what is sort of commonly known I'm sure it's not her real job title as a super producer <laughs> <laughs> um, she uh, worked with Ubisoft until back end of last year and now is at one of the big studios with EA over in Canada she is a fantastic advocate for games and um Particularly, we were really excited to get her to do this year's games lecture because she was the first woman to ever give the BAFTA games lecture. So um, quite a big moment for us in terms of that. And also she did, I suppose, a slightly different sort of talk, um, which was titled Managing Creativity. The ways that she's talking about how as game makers, you know, we invest so heavily in keeping people in playing games. So much time and effort is invested in these games. Why don't companies invest the same time and effort with their games developments team to sort of really help bring out the creativity and the, the excellence in teams? This is Jade Raymond. I think it's important to note that in video games, we have the ability to lead people to an epiphany and come to conclusions in a way that other mediums don't. Because on top of the narrative, we also have the game systems that can reinforce meaning and we can really make a statement. I believe that when you have meaning in your game, um, the player will take away more. You can actually enrich people's lives, not just entertain them. And similarly, in a company, when you have a purpose and you stand for something, um, you actually will have people feeling more fulfilled and more engaged, and therefore, you know, your games will be better, and you know, the profit gnomes will be happy as well. Um, one of my favorite examples, though, is the approach that uh, they took in City of Heroes to the sidekick um, mechanic. Instead of you know, a tutorial at all, basically, they incentivize people to recruit their buddies and teach them how to you know, play the game and stuff like that. And at Ubisoft Toronto, actually, we, we ended up in a situation after the first year where you know, in the first year, we recruited 120 people. And we were only 20. So you can imagine that for those 20 people to kind of help get those 120 ramped up and understanding things, and you know, we had one HR person, and <laughs> we, were all, we were all kind of failing miserably. And so we decided to take a little time out uh, as a leadership team and figure out what we could do about this. And what we put in place was a very simple buddy system. Basically, we were looking at what people, what their feedback was and what they were having a hard time with. And actually, six, over 65% of our new recruits were coming from other places. So in addition to you know, how to use the tools and what does my job mean at Ubisoft and all those other things, they also had questions about you know, where is a dentist and all those things. And there, there, there was no way that we could create onboarding materials and you know, an intranet site and everything to satisfy everyone's needs. And 
we assigned, based on profile and job type, each person a buddy. And sometimes, you know, because of the number of people we were recruiting, that buddy had only been there one month longer <laughs> than you. But also, that meant that they had a relevant experience of being a new person in the studio. And we gave the buddy a budget to take the new person out to lunch and also coffee a few times. And what was great is, instead of creating all of these documents, whether the new person had a question about where to get coffee or where to drop off their dry cleaner or, or what that weird you know, button in the UI did, <laughs> they, could, they had someone to go turn to. And the even better side effect of this is that the buddy initially was just answering questions, but eventually these, this forms relationships. And the main reason I think people end up having fun at work and staying long term has a lot to do with the people they get to work with. So we are helping create that link for people. I mean, is that not just the ideal to be able to gamify your office? <laughs> well, actually, she says about she doesn't advocate gamification oh, so much throughout okay. the uh, process. But the other part of it is, obviously, you do need people to level up and you, you want people to progress. And obviously, everyone wants a bit more money. But um, <laughs> it's about rewarding people, not just through money, um, you know, rewarding people through feeling part of a team and getting recognition within that part of the team as well. Is there anything in there that you think could be applied to, you know, your working environment? Obviously, they're working in an industry where they are making these games that and that's why perhaps like the buddy system works so yeah. well. But can that be applied to just regular offices? Yeah, definitely. I think so. I'm fairly new to BAFTA. So, you know, I've just sort of finished my first year, really. And Was there anything else that uh, Jade talked about that stuck with you? Um, I think one of the really nice quotes that there was a couple in there actually and um, I think one thing that sort of really struck a chord with me was that you know you, you can't have an inspired game without an inspired team um, you know that obviously they're if they're not motivated to make something and they're not feeling creative then you know you're not going to get a great game I think it was off the back of the same part of the lecture actually where she said you know really great games happen when everyone is so motivated they add their own special touch to the game so they're not just following the game design document you know they they, they felt empowered to go off slightly and be like well actually this would really work but that bit that you put in there that's not going to work but we could do it this way so you know I think kind of the whole thing about empowering everyone in the team to really come through with their creative geniuses um you know that's I think what I took out of it that's really interesting that you pick up on that because Katie um earlier talking about the screenwriters lectures also mm. took that away from um oh. one of the screenwriters said that the director was really collaborative and made yeah. sure that all the team knew how much he cared about their investment yeah, as well definitely. I, I promise we didn't speak to each other before <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not a fix it's not a fix so you've just finished your first year Mm -hmm. What are you going to do with your second year? What can we look forward to in games in 2016? Ooh, bigger and better, hopefully. <laughs> um, obviously, we've got the awards, um, which will be in April. And so that's obviously the real glamour side of the, uh, the calendar for us. And then we've got... Um, we don't waste our time. We've got an event in January, which is a excitingly a cross-sector question time. So actually, we've got people talking from various areas of games and TV about making content for mobile platforms, because obviously that's a very different area to creating, you know, in terms of games, console games that last hours and hours. You know, it's quick. It's, well, it's bite-sized chunks for TV and games so we've got that coming up we have got the virtual reality stuff that I was talking about um, which will hopefully be earlier this year um, and then yeah we're looking to just constantly make sure that 
people are aware that we do games events <laughs> um, and you know we're gonna we're gonna be having much more masterclasses obviously crew will be happening again mm-hmm. um, can anyone just rock up to that or how, how does it work um, so with BAFTA crew every, people will have to apply to be a part of the process but as with all of our events that we do for games at BAFTA, they are open to the public as well. You know, members obviously get slightly earlier access, but the, the tickets are available to anyone that's interested in learning more about games and, yes, and improving their craft. <laughs> Kerry, thank you very much for talking to The Guru. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's edition of The Guru. There are tons of great programmes in this series on everything from makeup design to scoring movies, so make sure you look back on our podcast feed. You can subscribe to The Guru through all podcast apps. My name is Rihanna Dillon. The producer was Matt Hill with support from Jess Lenton. Until next month, goodbye and happy Christmas. The Guru. 